Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. <clears throat> now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father's Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week in my first sermon with you, we looked together at the ministry of the church, whose ministry is this, and we emphasized the fact that it's, this ministry is not about me, so it's not my ministry, neither is it about you, it's not really your ministry, it's not even about us and our ministry together. The ministry of the church of Jesus Christ is about Jesus and his ministry, which he shares with us, and we are commissioned to carry on until such time as he returns. Today I want to continue within the Gospel of Mark. The, the lectionary passages are just very compelling. 
Um, and I'm not typically a lectionary pe preacher, but I find myself uh, not being able to get away from them. And I think I'm going to do it again this next week, looking forward. But uh, can't get out of the first chapter of Mark. But at any rate, uh, we're looking today at the whole subject of our calling to be in companionship with Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. And the lectionary gives us two very well-known but radically different call stories uh, to consider this morning. The first is the call of Jonah to be uh, a prophet of the Lord. Now what Julia read to us a few moments ago is the second time that God called Jonah. You remember the first call. He wanted him to go to Nineveh, the dreaded enemies of the Israelites, and preach there, tell them that they would be uh, destroyed in 40 days unless they repented. Jonah wants to have absolutely nothing to do with this mission. In fact, he's angry. He's upset. Uh, why should the Ninevites be forgiven, those wicked people? Uh, he suspects that God is merciful enough that he'll even forgive them if they should repent. And Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with that mission of mercy. He's very suspicious of what God will do. And so Jonah turns and goes the opposite way. Uh, Nineveh would be to the east. He takes the first boat he can find heading west. And interestingly, it says he's going to Tarshish. Tarshish is believed to be a coastal town on the Atlantic coast of Spain, and it was as far west as boats would travel in those days. So he's getting as far away from this mission as he possibly can. But as we all know, a storm comes up on the sea, Jonah confesses to his shipmates that he is the cause of the tempest because he's fleeing from God, trying to avoid this mission that God has given him. And subsequently, though reluctantly, the, the men throw him into the sea. The sea is quietened. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, spit up on the beach. Once again, calls him. Uh, God calls him to go to Nineveh. And sure enough, the, the strange thing happens. The people repent, and God forgives them and forestalls uh, their judgment. Really, the book of Jonah isn't uh, a book so much of prophecy as it is a story about a prophet. The prophetic words of Jonah are just seven or eight words, yet in 40 days none of it will be destroyed. It's more a story about the call of the man to be uh, a prophet. The second call story is equally familiar. We've heard it several times this morning. But it's radically different. This is the call of the first disciples in the ministry of Jesus. Men are called to come and follow him, to be his companion, to join him in the work that he is doing. Now the goal is the same, to reach people who need to hear about the good news of a God who loves them, to repent and change their ways. But the response is radically different in this account. Uh, Mark makes it clear that there's an urgency here to the decision as to whether or not one will follow or not. And the response of Simon and Andrew and James and John is affirmative, but it's also immediate. In both instances, the word immediate is used. For these four fishermen, there's no questioning, uh, there's no negotiation, there's no delay, there's no bargaining there's no apparent reservation. In fact, a word isn't even spoken according to the Gospel of Mark by the four fishermen. They simply get up and follow when Jesus invites them to do so. 
I'm sympathizing with poor Zebedee sitting back in the boat with the hired men thinking, what in the world's going on here? My two sons just left. Go off to this stranger by the sea. Don't you know there must have been something wonderfully compelling about Jesus that these four would just immediately leave their trade, their profession, leave their family, and follow him down the seashore. I wonder what would happen if I would go over to Shem Creek someday and call out to the fishermen, come and follow me. They'd probably call 911. I doubt that they would, any would come and follow. But these men, all four of them, followed immediately. They couldn't have known at the time that they were being recruited to be critical players in the greatest redemptive drama in human history. They could not have known at the time what cost this would be to them personally and to their families. We're not told by Mark what they believed about Jesus. Had they known him previously? Had they heard him before? Did they know him in any way? All we know is that seemingly without reservation, they get up and they follow, despite what reservations they may have had. But this gospel, this first gospel, the gospel of Mark, uh, makes it clear that there's an urgency to the kingdom of God being present and the time for would-be disciples to make a decision. Are you going to follow or not? This gospel almost jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. We don't find in the gospel of Mark what we find in Matthew and Luke, the other synoptics. But there's nothing here about... Uh, the angel visitation, the announcements of the coming birth. Uh, there's nothing here about uh, John the Baptist and the story of his birth and what his parents went through. There is nothing but mention of uh, the baptism or the wilderness experience for 40 days. The first 13 verses of Mark 1 are just a summary of what we find in the other Gospels, just barely mentioning. No, the important thing, is whether or not people are going to be engaged in the work of Jesus and in the coming of his kingdom. It requires a decision. This is the central issue in the Gospel of Mark. Is this really the Son of God, the Messiah? And if it is, what are we going to do about it? You can read this Gospel as a mystery book because one of the questions throughout Mark is, who is this man? that's saying all these things and doing all these things. The only people that rightly identify Jesus in the Gospel of Mark are the demons. They know who he is. Do you know who the first person is that recognizes who he is and claims it and says it? It's the centurion at the foot of the cross. Surely this man was the Son of God. And the secret's out. But the issue is, is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Messiah? And if it is, what does that mean for us? What decision does that force us to make? Jesus always invites disciples, past and present, to come to a decision about the kingdom. It's not one we can put off forever. There's a problem that I've found in every church I've ever served. I'm sure it's here as well. It may be that sometimes a majority of church members labor under a mistaken, mistaken notion of what discipleship really is. Because so many people on the roles of the church either naively assume or else they emphatically believe that what makes you a Christian is what you believe. 
And so our beliefs have to be right. Our theology has to be sound. That this is what is required of those who would be in the company of Jesus. But while believing is important, following is essential for any would-be disciple. Think back over your knowledge of the Gospels. Where does Jesus say, believe in me? Where does Jesus challenge people to believe in him? I said in a class one day that I don't think Jesus ever says that anywhere in the Gospels. And an old Bible uh, teacher, Dr. Dan Adams, who taught Bible at First Gods for over 50 years, uh, grabbed me after class and says, I can think of one. He said, John 14, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house and many mansions. But even there, Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples, telling them that he's about to die, but he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to come back and receive them. So it's not so much believing in him as a propositional statement as it is believing him, trusting him. Time and time again, though he doesn't say believe in me, so often he says, follow me. Eighty times, as a matter of fact, in the Gospels. The Greek word akalutheia, follow, is found frequently on the lips of Jesus. He is always asking people to follow him. <clears throat> Too many people say they believe in Jesus, but they've never really made that decision as to whether or not they're going to follow him. Their faith consists more of intellectual assent to propositional statements, more this than anything else. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that he's the Messiah. Yes, I believe he died for sinners. Yes, I am a sinner. Therefore, I believe, I guess, that Jesus is my Savior. I'm, I'm saved. But these are just factual statements that we affirm. Just like we say, well, I believe Henry McMaster is governor of South Carolina. I believe Tim Scott and... Lindsey Graham are senators from South Carolina. But you see, you can believe these things, and it doesn't really alter or affect your lifestyle or your living in any way. It doesn't change your values. It doesn't make you any different from the ordinary Joe or Jane down the street, does it? And yet, if we are following Jesus in addition to believing in him, our lives will definitely be changed, altered in some way. How does Paul put it? If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed away and something new has come. And yet so often there doesn't seem to be anything really different or new or changed about so many of us who profess to be Christian because you can't distinguish our lives from the lives of other decent, law-abiding people around us who have no relation to Christ or to the church. Now, to be sure, even if we resolve firmly to follow Christ, it's not going to be a perfect following. It wasn't for these four fishermen, and it won't be for us. Our old nature still tries to come forward, raise its ugly head, tries to get us to work on our agendas rather than our Lord's agenda. And for these four fishermen who responded so affirmatively and so obediently and so immediately, they certainly had their moments as well. As we see in the gospel story, they didn't always understand the Lord or his mission. Frequently they didn't. They didn't trust him on occasion. They argued over who was the greatest among them by the worldly standards. They wanted to destroy their enemies, call down fire from heaven to destroy them rather than love them. 
They resisted when Jesus told them they should feed the hungry. They fell asleep when Jesus was in agony in the garden. They denied that they knew him at the end and fled, left him to die on a skull-shaped hill. They had their moments. To follow does not mean you'll follow perfectly, but it does mean that you'll repent, that you'll resolve to do better, that you will be more invested in following Jesus and being his companion. The call of God to Jonah and the call of God to Simon, Andrew, James, and John forces us, I think, on this Sunday to examine our own discipleship and to ask, am I just a believer in Jesus or am I a follower of Jesus? Because you can believe without following, but it's near impossible to follow without believing without cherishing his companionship and his work that he calls us to do. It is in the following that faith is so often experienced and the risen Lord is encountered. So what kind of disciples are are we? Are we fans of Jesus or are we followers of Jesus? What prompts this sermon is not just these two wonderful lectionary texts for today, but just the felt need... For Christians today who fill our pews and our churches to look again at the caliber of their own discipleship and to ask themselves some very difficult questions that sometimes are hard to face. Membership alone is not what the world needs today or what the Lord asks of us. Neither is belief alone. How does James put it? Faith without works is dead. You believe that God is one, the devils believe that, and shudder. Now before you start thinking he's going to be preaching some kind of works righteousness, let me try to clarify what I'm saying here this morning. I'm not arguing that. For generations, I know when I was growing up in the church, it was generally taught that uh, when it came to salvation, Roman Catholics believed in salvation by works, and Protestants, Presbyterians in particular, believed in salvation Uh, by faith or through one's belief. Now that's a false distinction um, and overly simplistic. Of course Catholics believe in faith and of course Protestants believe in works. It's not either or, it's both and. The truth of the matter is if we're saved it's by grace. Not necessarily either by our believing or by our works. By grace are we saved and we appropriate that grace through a faith that works. If it is faith, it's working in our lives, in our churches, in our community. So has God called you into his service through the life and ministry of this congregation? And how are you responding to that call? We read in Matthew that many are called, but few are chosen. I think that's just a proverbial way of saying that there are Many more people who are called into service than there are people who answer in the affirmative and get on board with Jesus. So how do we measure? How do we really know if we're a follower of Jesus? I would encourage us not simply to look at what we believe, though that's not unimportant. It matters. But look at what we're doing. Where are our time, our talents, and our treasures invested? Is it in serving the purposes of Jesus Christ, reaching out 
as he did to a world in need? Or are we really pursuing our own agendas? The time is never wrong for disciples to ask these kinds of questions. And it seems appropriate especially to do so at the beginning of a new season of growth and service, at the beginning of a new year, as we said in recent weeks. I was talking one day several years ago to a friend of mine. Many of you may know Dr. Wallace Alston. Uh, but we were discussing membership in the church, and he said, you know, I've always believed that your membership in the church ought to expire at the end of every calendar year. You ought to have to re-up every January, just like you do in the military. He said, maybe if we had people re-up, sign on anew, then they would not become so apathetic and lethargic in their discipleship. Now, I'm not going to propose that to the session, but it is food for thought, isn't it? Are we willing to re-up as we prepare for new pastors who will be coming to this church, new servants who will be working with us, not to do the ministry for us, but to e equip us for the ministry this church is called to do. So what decision will you make about God's call in your life? Let us pray. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful minds. In purer lives thy service find, in deeper reverence praise. In simple trust like theirs who heard beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of the Lord, let us, like them, without a word, rise up and follow thee. Amen.